Father, even as we sing, there's a place, Lord, at the foot of the cross where we find forgiveness, where we find safety. I, I wonder how many of us can find that place or a place like it where we can be okay with who we are with that which you've given to us your word and your spirit where we can be alive to you and dead to self a place where all of that does not feel unnatural but it feels right we long for the day when heavens will be opened when you return for us and we are forever with you we give you thanks and we express our gratitude for who you are for what you've done for us through Jesus Christ our Lord amen please be seated so it was in July of 1864 that Union General William Tecumseh Sherman, who had adopted a scorched earth policy, burned Atlanta to the ground. Atlanta Mayor James Calhoun sent a message to Sherman asking him only two things, please begging him really. Protect the non-combatants and don't destroy private property. Sherman's answer, Atlanta is ours and fairly won. That cemented a real generational hate for Sherman in certain places. He was the first general in modern history to gain military advantage by specifically intentionally attacking civilian targets. My great-great-great-grandfather and mother lost everything in Atlanta. It was all burned to the ground. They lost their land. They lost their money. They lost many of their friends. And as soon as it was safe to leave Atlanta, they, they made their way to Texas, just outside of Dallas. And as a serious hobbyist of genealogy, their 11-year-old daughter's name, Sarepta, was always a bit of a mystery to me. And in the list of names, in fact, there are very few Sareptas. Have you ever met a Sarepta? In fact, it is the 3,026th most common name in America. That doesn't mean that one out of every 3,026 girls is named Sarepta. No, what that means is that in 1880, only five Sareptas were born <laughs> in the U.S. It wasn't the kind of a name that you would expect from a Nathan and Caroline to name their little girl. That, I mean, Sarepta sounds so much more exotic. And uh, it was a mystery, it, it, seriously, it was a mystery to me up until this past week as I was looking for a text that would be unexpected in some ways for Mother's Day, 1 Kings 17, 
8 through 24. I thought that would be perfect. So you'll forgive me if this hasn't actually turned uh, into a traditional Mother's Day message because it was actually a little more than I had anticipated. But we'll, we'll go from there. It tells the story of a, a mother who had lost her husband, who had run out of food, and was quite literally preparing herself to die alongside her son. And something unexpected happened. Something that turned her world around. And so in the process of developing the message, I also solved the mystery of my great-great-grandmother's name, Sarepta. As it turns out, Sarepta is the name of a town in Phoenicia. Who knew? I mean, you've got to consider that. Somebody knew that. And somebody thought it was so important that they named their daughter after the name of this town in Phoenicia. Phoenicia, modern day uh, Lebanon for the most part. It was in fact the metallurgical center of uh, the, the known world for all intents and purposes. And it was known for its gold and its silver. And Sarepta is the Greek word for refinery. We all know the city by its more Hebrew-sounding name, Zarephath. 1 Kings 17, 8-24 reads this. Then the word of the Lord came to him, that is Elijah, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded there a, a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. And so our visual, I don't think you can see it from this side, but we have a couple of pots up here. One is for the flour, one is for the oil. Obviously, this famine did not simply impact Israel. It went all the way up north into Lebanon, and this woman was facing the, uh, the famine and the starvation that came with it as well. In our story here, it takes place during the reign of Ahab. Ahab 
owns the distinction of displeasing the Lord more than any who came before him. Uh, That is not a good place to be. And the, the story, too, and I don't know if you've ever thought of it in these terms from a literary perspective, but the story offers this fascinating contrast between Jezebel and this unnamed widow. Jezebel and the widow were born less than 20 miles apart. But it might as well have been 10,000. Jezebel was married to Ahab, as you'll recall. She came from Phoenician royalty, and she was, in fact, the queen of Israel. She never knew need or want. Her desires were literally others' commands. She worshipped Baal and the Asherah, or Asherah proper. She did not worship at all the one true and living God, and she detested Elijah with an unmitigated hatred. On the other hand, this widow likely knew poverty all her life. She was actually preparing to die, her and her son, as Jezebel was literally preparing to destroy Yahweh worship, the worship of the one true living God in Israel. And the widow was a Gentile. She was living in a Gentile land. And yet, from the story, it seems that she had heard of Yahweh. In fact, in the text, she uses Yahweh. She does not use El. The widow was a woman who was likely even open to him being the one true and living God. That's implied in the story. And of course, by the end, we see that it's true. And instead of hating Elijah, she was forever grateful to God for Elijah. I mean, Jezebel was an evil woman of privilege. And this widow graciously gave up her last bit of food for a complete, total stranger. In the most literal sense of the word, foreigner. It's just here that I want to point out something, and that is is that the Holy Spirit moved people, moved the writers of Holy Scripture in such a way that that which is included in the Bible is precisely what God intended to be included in the Bible. In other words, there are no mistakes. This is there for a reason. And so the story has more meaning than we might have first assumed. It's intentional that this story is embedded inside the larger story of Ahab and Jezebel. I mean, and it's intended to contrast something uh, which we're going to see very clearly uh, right now. And that is the faith, faithless ungrateful Israel with the faithful and grateful Gentiles. And where we find that connection most clearly is actually in the Gospels, in Luke chapter 4. We're told at the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ, the very beginning, what he did was he went to Nazareth. And when he went into Nazareth, the leaders of the synagogue, they asked him to speak. 
And so one of the leaders handed him the scroll of Isaiah. And he rolled it open. And he rolled it and he rolled it. You've got to understand, when it says in the Bible, when it says and he opened the book and closed the book, that's not what was going on. He was opening and, and, and closing. He was rolling and unrolling scrolls. And he came to the place. So you could, this was a process. You had to know where it was. The Lord knew uh, these scrolls. And he came to the place where it read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, he handed it back, and then he sat down. Now in the West, when I sit down, or when whoever's preaching sit down, that, that means they're done. You're right? But that's not the way it was in the ancient Near East. When they sat down, they would stand up to read the Scripture. And when they had done reading the Scripture, then they would sit down. That means he was starting to preach. And so it says, every eye was fixed on him. Fixed on him because they all knew, everyone knew. This is not... Christian interpretation over the last 2,000 years. This passage was messianic and they knew it was from the day it was written. They knew it and so everyone knew he's talking about the Messiah. And (laughs) Jesus said to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What an amazing thing. So in, in essence, what he was doing without saying it directly, which is actually a very ancient Near Eastern way of doing things that extends all the way to this day, you don't say it directly. You read the text, at speaking of the Messiah, and then you say it's fulfilled. They were blown away. I mean, that's the best way you can uh, look at the text. It said they marveled. They were, they were astonished. This was something that they did not expect. But they had a problem and Jesus knew it. Because in their minds they began to say, Isn't this Joseph's son? Is not this Joseph's son? How could Joseph's son be the Messiah? What have you, what you've done in Caperna, uh, Capernaum They wanted him to do there. In other words, Jesus, show us some miracles. Prove it. If you're the Messiah. Some of you will remember this. Some of you will probably not particularly like it. But uh, I was reminded when I started thinking about what was their attitude. What was their attitude that they had? I was reminded of an old Andrew Lloyd Webber song that came from Jesus Christ Superstar. When Herod meets Jesus, some of you will remember that. Jesus, I am overjoyed to meet you face to face. You've been getting quite a name all around the place. Healing cripples, raising the dead. Jesus Christ, prove to me that you're divine. Change my water into wine. That's all you need do, and I'll know it's all true. You're the great Jesus. Prove to me that you're no fool. Walk across my swimming pool. You see, 
That's the irreverent attitude that they had in Nazareth. That's precisely the way they were thinking. You can't be Christ, you're Joseph's son. Prove it. If you're Christ, prove it. Prove it now. And Jesus says something which is peculiar in Luke in terms of the number of times it's used. He uses the word amen, amen, where we get our word amen. In other words, truly. This is only used four times in the entire gospel of Luke where Jesus says this, and this is one of them. He says, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown, but I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over all the land and yet Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage when they heard these things, and they took him to throw him off the brow of the hill. In other words, they, what Jesus said to them brought up deadly intent in their hearts, in their minds. This man deserves to die for what he's saying. What? Why were they so incensed that they wanted to kill him? Several reasons come together right away. Number one, by telling that story, they understood Jesus wasn't going to do any miracles in Nazareth. Elijah didn't do any, I'm not going to do any either. Second, that God's compassion and that messianic work, i.e. the Messiah's work, was going to extend to the Gentiles. That was something that they despised. And finally, by implication, that they were worse than the Gentiles. How dare you compare us to Ahab and his minions who were trying to overthrow Yahweh worship when here we are today worshiping the Lord God Almighty. And you're going to do that to us? They decided they were going to kill him. Of course, the passage says he just passed through their midst. I love that. I don't, I'd love to. Maybe we'll see a replay of that in glory. I don't know. But they wanted to see him dead. And so Jesus' story, his illustration, takes us back to our story. When Elijah arrived at Sarepta, at Zarephath, he saw a young widow. And she was gathering sticks to make a last meal for herself and her son and die. Her words were filled with hopelessness and despair. This widow, this single mother, told Elijah, I have only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. You know, before I became a Christian, I had two primary metaphors that were reflective of my life and my, my mind primarily. One was uh, the sea in the midst of a storm. The second one was just as meaningful to me. Um, and uh, so for years I did rock climbing. I don't know if we have any rock climbers or former rock climbing folks in here, but my 
true love was free climbing. I didn't want to use ropes. Uh, it was just me and the me and whatever it was that I faced. I loved the freedom of that. I loved the the danger, honestly. But ironically, as I look back, as I reflect on that and and look back, I discover in my own heart and my own mind that that being there was a place where I had the solitude and the safety that I needed. No one could get to me where I was at. And anyone who could go where I went, they were automatically my friend. (laughs) One time I was uh, climbing, well actually several times, but only one time I'll mention, I got to the end of my rope. Uh, So this particular time, it was a planned emergency descent into a crevasse in uh, Golcana Glacier. If you've ever seen a picture of Lord uh, Shackleton on the South Pole, I I was going to flash one up here, but uh, uh, I I have myself up on a glacier looking very uh, Shackletonishly. And uh, if you don't know who he is, you can you can you can look him up. Uh, And anyway, so I would go down into the the crevasse on this uh, glacier. Two other people had set up their ice axes with the rope around it wrapped around in a particular way, of course, where it would stop me, uh, we all hoped. And uh, I hoped more than they did. And so anyway, uh, over I went. And so down I went into this thing. And the sides were actually fairly smooth. And I don't know if you remember the old commercials, some of you will, uh, aqua velvet. That's the color of the ice in a glacier. It's the most beautiful blue that you've that you've ever seen and but anyway it got it started getting pretty raggedy down there and I was like okay it's time to time to stop guys <laughs> and uh, so finally the rope taut went taut and I and I stopped uh, towards the end of the rope so I was probably about 50 feet down and I was uh, fairly prepared for the confined space certainly I was prepared to being on the end of the rope I was prepared for the cold, and I was just marveling at the beautiful color of the ice. But what I was not prepared for was the the, the glaciers groan and glaciers creak, and they move. And so I'm down there, and I'm realizing, oh, this is not good. This thing could actually, you know, like uh, come together. So it was it was panic-inducing in in a, in a way, and uh, so. In addition to to that, my companions, when they tried to belay me up, when they tried to pull me up, it wasn't going to happen. <laughs> so here I was hanging down at the bottom, and they were up at the top. All they could do was to hold me, hold the rope, and then I was there at the bottom. Fortunately, I I, I knew how to make uh, it's uh, for those. If, if you've got any knot people in here, you'll be impressed. So I use a Prusik knot, and I went up the rope that way and uh, but trust me even back then when I was in excellent uh, uh, physical condition it was uh, it was a challenge and I'd been a Christian I think at that point for maybe just over six months perhaps if that long and so I called out to God to give me strength but also to my two companions to give them strength as well 
I mean, outside of confronting my sin, which was a dramatic thing for me, I'd never really called out to God before. And that's when it occurred to me that we call out to God when we're at the end of our rope. It occurred to me that that the end of your rope is in fact the perfect meeting grounds for you and God. It's when life is boiled down to survival that God is most present in your life. It's when you feel like you can't go on. It's when we find that there's nowhere to turn and that hope is fleeting. That is when God comes to us and that's where the widow was. She was at the end of her rope. She was at the end of her hope. Elijah told her, do not be afraid. And he instructed her to make a small loaf for him first and then afterward for herself and her son with that promise. The flour jar would not become empty. The oil jug would not run dry until the day the Lord sent rain again. And the widow did as Elijah said. She actually did this. That required a tremendous amount of faith on her part. And afterward, her flour jar never emptied. The oil jar never ran dry. And they had food throughout the drought. But some of you have already read the rest of the text. One day the widow was tested. Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. And his sickness was so severe, there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, What do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to put my son to death. He said to her, give me your son. I mean, the the woman didn't know what had caused the trouble, but she had some idea that sin, in particular her sin, had something to do with it. Now, I love this passage because perhaps the goodness of God in giving her sustenance through the famine caused her to think about the difference between a holy God and a sinful person. The scripture says, it's your kindness that leads us to repentance, O Lord. And Elijah had faith to believe that God would work a miracle. And he begged God to restore the life of this child. And God answered in the life of the child returned to him and he revived. And Elijah said, see, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of God in your mouth is true. Your text should have all capitals there. If they don't, let me clue you in again. 
She's using Yahweh. Yahweh in your mouth is truth. It's at this point that we see that this woman had become a believer in the one true and living God. And it's an amazing thing to see that this humble, poor, Gentile widow who had been willing to listen to Elijah at the point of death was rewarded and blessed for her faith. And yet the proud queen Jezebel refused to listen to the prophet of God at all. She didn't believe that he was a prophet of God. In fact, she wanted him dead. That's another story. To summarize it though, this merciless Jezebel would eventually go to her death fighting God. And specifically Elijah. And in contrast, this widow was restored to health from starvation and she saw the restoration of her son. God is the defender of the fatherless. God is the rescuer, the helper of the widow. He blessed this woman and helped her to conquer not only her fears and grow in faith, but to bring her life. The Zarephath widow, though unnamed, we don't know her name. She is known to us. So in our few remaining moments, what can we take from this? First and foremost, there is no hopelessness with God. Your circumstances, my circumstances, do not tell the whole story. Our view is so limited And at times it seems like God is not even there for us. But God sees and God knows. And He is our refuge and He is our place. And sometimes we don't realize it until we're, as in Latin they say, in extremis, at the point of death. Then you realize that God is there and that you have always been underneath His everlasting arms. You may be facing big unknowns. You may be at the end of your own ability and you may not be able to see a way through your circumstances. But the end of your rope is where you meet God. And His resources, secondly, are unlimited. And His timing is perfect. We only see that in hindsight mostly, but nevertheless it is. Because often we don't see it that way. But there's never hopelessness in God. This widow, she knew how much flour she had. She knew how much water or oil she had. She knew when the day would be. But you knew who else knew? God. And God had pre... Where was Elijah before he went to Zarephath. He was at the brook at Kareth, not ten miles away from his home, which he could not go to, 
being fed by ravens. God had already prepared this. He knew what she needed and when she needed it. And right now, no matter what your need is, God knows and he knows how he's going to meet it. Sometimes life can be more, at least it can feel like more than we can bear, piling one pain on top of another. But as painful as that place is, that's where God meets us. Over the years, many people have asked me, where was God when this or that happened? I mean, and our cry is, is, I mean, it's a righteous one. Like Martha, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Her words require us to confront this head on, this seeming absence of God from our experience. It causes our spirit to bend and it threatens to shatter us under immense loads, whether it's health, finance, or relational problems. And it seems like the room is locked from the outside and we can't even find the door. That's where God gives His purest light that we can see. It is in those moments of our desperation and need that we find the glory of God most pure to us. When our strength is gone, the Apostle Paul says the same thing. It's in our weakness that his strength is made perfect. So it was in 1854 that my great-great-great-grandfather and mother named their young daughter Sarepta. They knew the story. They had to know the story. They had to even know or someone tell them a little bit of Greek. Perhaps it was from a sermon like this. But the point is, they were people of faith. They fled a city in ashes to come to a place where they might find peace here in Texas. And had that not happened, I would never have been born. I hope that's not too narrow a scope because I believe the same is true for each of you. And I also believe this, that had God not had compassion on the Gentiles, we would not have had the way of salvation offered to us. This world is broken. The cities are burning Lives are burning. We need deliverance. We need deliverance from our sins. Romans 8.3 tells us that we were delivered from our sins because Jesus was delivered for us all. And only through Jesus Christ can we enter a safe place. The foot of the cross, the city of hope, only through his death on the cross. For our sins, can we look forward beyond this plane and maybe have a glimpse as we heard this morning? Maybe we can be even closer to heaven 
then we realize. And I hope that is true for you this day. Father, we are deeply grateful for this story. And Lord, we have no idea, but some of us have interests that maybe don't run as others do, but I am I'm anxious in glory to see where the progeny of this widow went, what they did, how many of them influenced the world for Christ. We thank you today on this Mother's Day. And we pray that that each one would have a day filled with an understanding of how privileged we are to serve one like you. Strengthen us, encourage us, we pray, through Christ our Lord.